Lambacker Lane criminal defense attorneys Dan Bush and Steve Jarman will be discussing driving under the influence, or better known as DUIs. Okay, thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, a little bit of a change. Jim, and, Jim Sargent and Guy Donatelli will not be performing today in the studio. <laughs> Instead, you're stuck with Dan Bush and Steve Jarman. Steve and I are partners at Lamb Lane. We practice criminal defense. I will tell you that it's hopefully our half hour is going to be a little bit more interesting than a business divorce. Uh, we do. We practice criminal defense work. Um, we are the guys that you want to have at the cocktail parties because we have some interesting stories sometimes. So hopefully we're not just here to tell stories, but... Um, Steve, what do you think today? Yeah, so, you know, if you listen to the show, Dan and I were here about a few weeks ago, uh, two or three weeks ago, and our topic at that time was DOI. Uh, but we felt that uh, DOI is such a broad topic and it's such an intricate topic. And there's so many things that come along with it, consequences, penalties, uh, different defenses, that we needed, we needed more than one show to do it. So we wanted to come back and touch up on some areas that we didn't discuss before and, and give some more information that we think can be uh, valuable and helpful uh, going forward. And we're even going to try something a little bit different this time. Our last couple of shows, we were just uh, we were pre-recording them and then putting it out in the air. Today we're going to do something a little bit different, and we're going to take calls if anyone wants to call. If not, then, then we'll just kind of breeze through it. But if you would like to call, the number to call is 610-701. 9243 at 6107019243 uh and I totally agree with what Steve was saying is that DUIs not only are they the most prevalent crime out there but there are so many different variations i mean you have alcohol DUIs you have drug DUIs you have the consequences of DUIs and the fact is you don't necessarily have to view yourself as a as being a criminal or be a bad person to commit a DUI, and that's just kind of the reality. I know that I've been in court many a times where judges will say, look, you're here with a DUI, so you are a criminal, and I guess that's true, but it doesn't necessarily make you a bad person. And I'd imagine that the people we're probably going to be talking to, whether it's here or whether it's going to be on the Internet later, are fall into that category, the people who don't think of themselves as criminals, but... Um, nonetheless, might have a run-in with the law. I, I agree with that wholeheartedly. I, when we talk about cr crimes and criminality, a lot of times we almost we separate uh, DUI from other crimes. We'll say, uh, what kind of law do you handle? Well, we handle DUI in criminal matters. Notice how we, we don't include the DUI in the criminal matter, even though, you know, as Dan said, it's a crime. Um, I think there's a recognition that unlike other crimes where you, there has to be some kind of intent to do something wrong, you know, a lot of people who commit the crime of DUI, usually they're making bad judgments. They, they think that um, either the, the control substance prescribed medication that they took was, was fine uh, when they got in the car. Either they thought that you know, the one or two drinks that they had was not enough to make them over the limit, and you know, later on they find out they're wrong. So um, you know, I think that's why we as lawyers, we you know, kind of put it into a different category ourselves. We, we know these... You know, or people that are, you know, for the most part, 
just trying to go through life, working every day, and they made a you know really bad judgment that's um, going to have some consequences. And hopefully today we'll go through some of some more of those consequences that we didn't explore last time. Okay, so to recap what we talked on last time, uh, because it'll give us a foundation, kind of a framework of what we're going to do this time. DUIs in Pennsylvania fall into three separate categories or three separate tiers. Uh, they are, generally speaking, they're divided by blood alcohol level. Tier 1 is a blood alcohol level of 0 0.08 to a 0 0.099. Tier 2 is a 1.0 to a 1.59. And then the highest tier is a Tier 3 with a blood alcohol level of 0.16 or above. And that three-tier system, although it's generally divided by blood alcohol level, there's obviously a recognition that you're not always driving under the influence of just alcohol. There's drugs as well. Um, drugs, controlled substances, marijuana, whatever that might be, they automatically fall into the third tier, so the highest tier. Uh, and what that tier format recognizes is that lower blood alcohol, the penalties are going to be less. Higher blood alcohol, the penalties are going to be more and then the penalties get greater with each subsequent DUI. So obviously a second is greater than a first, a third is greater than a second, and that kind of matrix or format sets up for what we're going to be talking about now. Specifically, we already talked about the alcohol last time. We kind of want to focus on the other parts of things. Yeah. Oh, I was going to say, last time we talked about... Um, I actually gave an example of a controlled substance DUI that I defended where... You know, a client of mine had taken prescribed medication. Uh, doctor had given it to him. They took it in their prescribed amounts, and they ultimately ended up getting a DUI, and they were kind of surprised by how that happened. Um, fortunately for my client, we were able to get an acquittal, uh, but this is something that, you know, Dan and I are seeing a lot. Um, we're seeing most people at this point, because of awareness, know that you're taking a risk if you go to a bar and drink alcohol and then get in the car and drive. But... There's a whole different world out there of people who trust their doctors. Their doctors are people that there's, you know, they rely on. They give them medication, and they think the medication is going to make them better. And the next thing you know, they're, you know, maybe falling asleep at the wheel. They they pass out. They don't know what's going on. And the cops are, you know, putting handcuffs on them. So, um, you know, where alcohol is more clear cut, if it's in your system, there's certain levels that can be quantified. Um, you know, prescription drugs, controlled substance, you know, those, those fall into a category of how does it affect you? You know, is it in your system? Check. But how does it affect, affect you? Does it make you incapable of safe driving? So it gets a little trickier. Um, even more tricky uh, is, is driving under the influence of marijuana. Um, this is a, a situation that Dan and I see a lot where people are coming in, they got a, a DUI citation, and they're telling us, "Hey, look, I, I, I wasn't. I, I smoked, you know, weed a couple of days ago. Uh, there's no way I was high. How can I get this DUI?" Now, Dan, I know you've done some extensive litigation around DUIs. You defended a lot of cases um, with success. Talked to a lot of toxicology experts on this subject. Um, can you explain to or describe to audience how it's possible um, that someone could? have marijuana, smoke marijuana, two, three days before, and somehow end up with a DUI. Yeah, sure. It's, marijuana has become, 
such a hot topic in in the DUI world, particularly in Pennsylvania, because the climate is changing. It's not uh, it's not such a taboo kind of mark on your chest that I might smoke marijuana. Um, and the fact, I mean, these are the facts that a lot of people out there do smoke marijuana, and it's not just it's not just the kids anymore. It's not just the high schoolers or the college. There's a heck of a lot of adults out there who are smoking it rec- recreationally as well. It's legalized in other states. It is it is not legal here in Pennsylvania, but it's nonetheless still very prevalent, and it just doesn't necessarily have that dark taboo uh, uh, mark as far as being socially unacceptable as it once was. So what we are seeing is a lot more clients who have those issues exactly what you're saying. And I think a good understanding of how marijuana works uh, within somebody's body, uh, at least coming from a lawyer and not a doctor or a toxicologist, is probably a good understanding to start off with. Um, You're right. You're 100% right. I've had a ton of cases, not only recently, but um, a little bit in the past, and a lot of serious, serious results as uh, as a part of how somebody was driving, and whether they were under the influence or not. Um, so, getting down to the nitty gritty of the marijuana, ma- marijuana is basically divided into two separate parts. There's an active component, and there's an inactive component, and Toxicologists will say there's a third component as well, but for our discussion purposes, let's talk about just the active component and then the inactive component. It's real basic. The active part is the part that gets you high. You smoke, and then there's a part of the marijuana that affects your ability to do a whole heck of a lot of different things, including driving a car. That is the active component. So so if I were to smoke marijuana now, we're not not doing it right now, but if I were to do that now... um, that I'm going to have active marijuana in my system for what? A couple of hours? That's going to be in exactly my system? Exactly what it is. Yeah, you're looking probably, and toxicologists will tell you different things, but uh, legally speaking, that active part's going to be in there for a couple hours and at is, the most. And is that going to have an effect on me? It will. That's what gets you high. Okay. That, that high comes and goes. Okay. Um, any, any marijuana smoker is going to tell you exactly that. I'm high for a little bit, and then it goes. And then you're no longer high, obviously, anymore, but still a part of it hangs out in your system. What's that? And that's the inactive component. Okay. So for, toxicologically speaking, one's called Delta-9 THC, the other's called Delta-Carboxy THC, or actually Carboxy THC. It's that Carboxy THC, the part that hangs out in your system, that nobody in the world is going to argue is getting you high. You, you're going to have marijuana in your system. It's just not going to be the active part anymore. It's going to be that inactive part. So in your example, let's say you smoke marijuana today. Okay. You're going to feel the effects of it for a couple of hours. After that, boom, it's gone. That active part is gone, but that inactive part is the part that hangs in your system and it hides in little fat cells and everything. And most people, most toxicologists will tell you it's going to be there for probably somewhere around 30 days. And, and are the toxicologists telling you, you know, you've talked to many of them, are they telling you that you are impaired with that in your system? There's not a person, not a toxicologist in the world who will ever argue that the inactive component is going to affect your ability to drive a car. You're not going to feel high. You might smoke. You'll, you'll feel it for a couple of hours, and then it's gone, and it's gone, gone. That feeling is gone. But the inactive component is still there, 
And the problem is with the laws of Pennsylvania, as they're all set up right now. That was my question. Like, so if there's a consensus that the inactive part is not making you high, not impairing you, why is it here in Pennsylvania you can have a client, we can have a client that comes in with a citation or a charge for DUI, even if they have no active ingredient or active uh, marijuana in their system? Well, let's do it by example. So let's say you smoke today. Um, you obviously feel the effects of it now. Today is, what, Thursday? Let's wait a week. A week from now, you're going to you're driving to work next Thursday morning. You get pulled over for something. For one reason or another, a police officer has a reasonable suspicion to believe, hey, you know what, I don't know why, but I'm getting, some, getting the feeling that something's wrong here. I think you're under the influence of something. He takes you back to the hospital, and you agree to have blood drawn. There is going to be no active component of marijuana in your system. It's all gone by now, but you'll have that inactive component still hanging out. The way the Pennsylvania laws are, Steve, and you know this, the way the law is is that you have any of that inactive component in your system at all above the teeniest tiny level, you're still going to be guilty of a DUI. And that's this straight. Like there's no argument to it. Yep, there's it's no argument. In your system, guilty. It's a, it's almost a strict liability offense, meaning if it's over a little detectable level and it's in your system, you may not be high. In fact, nobody's going to argue you're high. doesn't matter. It's in your system. You're still going to be guilty of a DUI. And it's true, uh, or correct me if I'm wrong, but we have the lowest threshold. In the, we have one of the lowest thresholds, our state. Like So other states, you can have a higher uh, inactive in your system and still drive. Is that correct? Yeah, basically what they say in Pennsylvania is if it's detectable, over the teeniest of levels, it's going to be DUI. And that, that brings up a point. With alcohol, obviously, there is a recognized level. 0 0.08, pretty much all toxicologists will agree. At 0 0.08, you're impaired. Toxicologists disagree on the level of even the active component uh, as to whether you'll be impaired. Some say um, marijuana is generally measured in nanograms. Some will say 5 nanograms. Some will say 10 nanograms. And I would assume that that's probably why the legislature said, look, we're not going to get into that debate as to whether uh, what nanogram level is appropriate. We're going to say none. It's, it's a per se, we don't want it going on in our state. So if you have any in your system, boom, you're going to be guilty of a DUI. So in short, it sounds like that any amount Basically, yeah, any, any, any amount of marijuana is going to cause an issue for you. So what we're going to do now is we're going to take a little bit of a commercial break, a minute and a half or so, and then we'll come back and address some of these other issues. All right, welcome back to the Land Macaline Show. Um, as we said before, I'm Steve Jarman. I'm joined with my partner here, uh, Dan Bush. We're talking about DUI, and we're specifically talking about marijuana uh, DUIs at this point. Uh, Dan, um, a lot of I'm getting a lot of people coming in recently because obviously in Pennsylvania now you can get uh, medical marijuana if you have uh, a license to do so. So I'm getting a lot of questions from people coming in saying, "Look, I, I got a medical marijuana card, so hey, I, I can't get a DUI now. I, I'm 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 cool to drive, right? Is that correct or is that not correct?" It's such a hot topic nowadays as the as the kind of tone of society changes and the potential changes in the law. The fact is that I don't think the laws have caught up with the medical marijuana part of things. Yes, medical marijuana allows you to smoke marijuana under certain circumstances and obviously with the permission of uh, a medical doctor, um, but it doesn't mean you can drive. 
with it. Like I said, the laws haven't changed. There's no recognition in the law right now that uh, a medical marijuana card even exists. So what you're finding is, yes, you can legally do it, but you can't drive while you're doing it. And the problem doesn't really doesn't really occur for people who've just smoked marijuana because of mar- medical marijuana card. Because quite frankly, if you're high, I don't care whether it's because you have a card and you can legally do it. If you're high, you're not supposed to be driving anyway. Nobody right. wants to be on the road, and that the legislators, the legislators obviously don't want people on the road who are high. The problem becomes that second part that we were talking about, the inactive component. Now you have people that are smoking all the time because they medically need it. And, yeah, just like you can't drive while you – well, just like alcohol is legal, exactly. you're allowed to have a beer and drive. Uh, you're not allowed to have a, a lot of beers and drive. Good example. Um, it's the same thing with the medical marijuana. The problem with alcohol is alcohol comes and goes out of your system, and then that next Thursday, yeah, you can drive to work. It's not going to be in your system anymore. Yeah, exactly. With medical marijuana, though, you have people who may smoke at in the morning hours, and they won't be high in the afternoon, but they're not allowed to drive anymore because they have that inactive component. And these people more than likely are smoking pretty much every day because it's a medical necessity. So the laws haven't caught up yet, um, and quite frankly, if the police were willing to enforce that kind of situation, then you're going to have a heck of a lot more DUIs. If you're asking me what I think is going to happen, and this is Dan Bush on uh, <laughs> Pennsylvania law, um, I think what's going to happen eventually is that the legisla- legislators are going to try to eliminate that inactive component from being a part of the DUI. So in other words, um, you would only get a DUI if the active part was in your system. If you had inactive, that's not going to be something that would be charged in, in the Dan Bush um, thinking of how this could play out. That's that's what I foresee coming, whether it's going to happen, when it's going to happen, I don't know, because marijuana has a lot more political aspect to it. It's not just hey, the lawmakers are sitting down and they're talking about this stuff and they're going to change the law. It's obviously a hot topic with with the masses as well. So they don't want to just kind of say that we're changing it all of a sudden and then have something change down the pike as well. Um, that's what I see. That's what I foresee it happening. Uh, and it makes sense if you think about it. Yeah. You treat it just like alcohol, that you don't want a drunk person driving. But that drunk person can drive when they sober up. Same type of thing with marijuana. You don't want a person under the influence or high driving, but hopefully when that person sobers up, they should be allowed to drive, particularly if they're doing it legally. Yeah, I mean, because right now it seems like, you know, for the audience purposes, we really can't give advice on when you're safe to drive after you've consumed marijuana. It's almost like you have to, in a position where you'd have to tell someone, look, if you've use any time within the last week or so you're you're probably not you're at danger you're at least at risk of getting a DUI I told a client that in the meeting the other day that whole Thursday and Thursday example and he said what you gotta be <laughs> kidding me so anyway Steve let's let's shift gears for a little bit here uh, I don't want to do what we did last time and walk out and say we didn't get to 90% of what we were trying to talk about so uh, a refusal if I say in the context of DUIs a refusal what does that mean to you so a refusal, I mean, it's a, this is probably the number one 
question that people ask after they've already received the DUI. Um, usually when they come to the office, um, if they've refused or didn't refuse, they'll ask, should I have refused? Um, and uh, What does refusal mean? Refusal it, to do what? So if the if you're driving, police suspect that you're under, and you get pulled over for any reason, and the police suspect that you're under the influence of alcohol or drugs, they will ask you to submit to a chemical test to determine what's in your system. Um, under Pennsylvania law, when we get our driver's license, we're, we're giving what's called implied consent. We're, we're basically saying that, it, you know, because you're giving us this license or giving us this privilege to drive, if we're ever under suspicion for driving under influence, we will agree to submit to this testing so you, the police officers can determine if we are, in fact, impaired. So if a person gets pulled over and says, no, I'm not going to submit to that, that's called a refusal. And so a lot of times we get the question, well, after the, after the fact, should I refuse, or if the person did refuse, uh, should I just submit it to the test? And that's really not a question that we can answer. There's there's number one that'd be legal advice, and you know as we've said before on the show, we're not here to give legal advice. Um, but there's so many different variables that could factor into whether or not it was appropriate to give a, to give a test or not. Um, what we can focus on today is the consequences and talk about what happens as a result of refusing. Yeah. So tell me. And that whole matrix, that the whole tier system that we talked about before, we said it was based on blood alcohol level. Well, you, obviously with a refusal, they don't draw blood, so they don't know what's in your blood. So where does where does it fall then? So up until up, in, up until recently, if you refused um, to give a chemical test, you were automatically considered to be in the highest tier. So by law, you would be moved from that first tier Dan talked about all the way to the third tier, facing the basically the highest penalties for a DUI. Um, but a, a case came out um, a few years back, a Supreme Court case changed that, and now um, that's no longer valid. There's a long story behind that. But right now, if you were to, if a person were to refuse um, a, a, a blood test, then that person would be um, in the first tier. You'd be in the general impairment tier. So I'm glad you made the di distinction yeah. between blood tests. Obviously, there's a breath test that some police departments Correct. use. Does that count for a breath test as well? No. So if, if, if a police officer were to ask for a breath test and you were, were to refuse, that would be the highest tier. You would be considered in the highest tier. In other words, they figure, look, if you're not going to tell us, we're just going to assume that you're the highest tier. Correct. Um, so there's, there's really two... Penalties. There's civil and criminal penalties for a refusal. Um, the civil penalty is if you were to refuse to give a test, you would automatically receive a one-year loss of license. No matter if you're convicted of the underlying DUI or not, you would automatically get that. Um, on the criminal side, the criminal penalty comes in effect in a couple ways. One, you and I talked about this before. Um, in a jury trial, the judge is allowed to tell the jury that if you refuse, the jury can consider that to be consciousness of guilt. What that means is in the jury instruction, the judge would say, look, this person refused. You're allowed to, to say or consider to yourself that that person refusing means that they're guilty. They, they, they knew they were guilty. That's why they refused to give blood. That's a very powerful 
tool that a Commonwealth had. And, Dan, you were giving me some examples of what the Commonwealth says or the prosecutor says. In yeah, I, I, I've had a bunch of trials uh, where my client has refused to have blood drawn. Um, and the prosecutor inevitably will use this line. That, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, we have given the client, the defendant here, the golden opportunity to prove us wrong. We think you're drunk. Prove us wrong. Give us some blood. And what did that person say? No, thank you. I'd rather take my 12-month loss of license. Ladies and gentlemen, what can you take out of that? Why would, would basically saying, if you weren't drunk, wouldn't you give us blood? And, and, and that's very hard to overcome because then that kind of leaves us in the scramble to because it kind of comes back on it. Well, why didn't you give blood, right? And so some people yeah. can say, well, you know, I'm afraid of needles or whatever. you got to you know, know it's coming. You, but, they're going to say it, right? But that's hard to overcome because most people think, most people logically conclude that if it were me in that position, I would want to prove I was innocent. And if I was innocent, I would want to tell people. Now, as criminal defense lawyers, we know that that's not always the case, but we understand that's the general consensus of thinking out there. From a defense attorney perspective, I will say this. DUIs are very difficult to beat, uh, to prove to a fact finder, either a judge or a jury, when they have blood and they have a number and a toxicologist can explain what that number is, DUIs are very difficult to beat. If you're over the legal limit, it's very difficult to get outside of that. However, they can still prove you're drunk if they don't have blood. They just prove it in a different way. And then what they do is they, they'll bring on an officer. That officer will have X amount of years of experience. He says, I have this much training. I've been to this many classes. And in my experience, even though we don't have blood here, this person was still intoxicated. And they try to, they say, you can't walk a straight line. You can't touch your finger to your nose. As a criminal defense attorney, those are the cases that at least you have something to work with, quite frankly, right? You have a fighting chance because you can always argue that the officer was wrong, right? If it's just the officer's opinion, then – and it's not science. It's very hard to overcome science. But an opinion, you know, that's something that can be challenged. Well, you know, officer, how many arrests have you had? Have, you know, okay, this is only your tenth arrest. You know, uh, how many arrests were you the lead officer? There's a lot of things that you can do to challenge that officer's credibility very hard to challenge the credibility of, of a test. And then, unfortunately, they bring out a, the video camera that is sitting <laughs> on the police. And your client's falling all over the place and uh, wants to wrestle with the police officer. And then you go, I told you we should have played, pleaded guilty, right? Sometimes I tell clients, look, we are lawyers. We're not magicians. <laughs> well, uh, I think what we tried to do here today, and I'm glad we just touched on refusals because it's a big part of what we do. Those are the cases that you can actually sink your teeth into because you say, okay, this is one I can do some actual lawyering on and we might have something to work with. Um, and it's not our job to get guilty, plea, guilty people off free. It's our job to kind of make the system work, and, and those are the cases where you really can put them to their paces and make them do what they're supposed to do. So hopefully we were able to close out the DUI part of things. There's obviously a million other things to talk about with DUIs, um, but that's not really the scope of what we're trying to do here. And we really wanted to give you a little bit more meat on the bones than we did last time, and hopefully we were able to do that. So. As always, half an hour goes extraordinarily fast, um, but I enjoyed it as always, Steve. Me as well. All right. Take care. 
You've been listening to the Lamb Lane Legal Show, heard every other Thursday at 1230 on WCHE 1520, the talk of Chester County.